nice warm day. It's been a nice warm week. I feel like everything's going great. I hope because I <laughs> it's so funny that you started off that way because I'm about to be very sad again because last week was straight rain. Right. Rain for Mother's Day. Every day for Mother's Day. And then we had like this week was so sunny. And then we're about to go into like another weekend of thunderstorm constant. Of thunderstorm. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> and I'm a little upset because it's Casey and I's anniversary this mm. weekend. Um, not our wedding anniversary, but our dating anniversary. Dateiversary. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's been eight years now Mm. which is wild that is that's such a long time very long time so it's funny because we didn't realize our what our anniversary was for a very very long time (laughs) because we just kind of knew it was like mother's day 2014 so we always know it's sometime around mother's day (laughs) perfect i love that but the exact uh date and date was uh eluding us for a long time until Mm. we were actually in new orleans like two years ago and i was like Oh my God! Mother's Day 2014 was today. Like it's the That's 14th. Our day. That's the day. <laughs> Perfect. So it's great. So eight years, beautiful. Eight years. You guys That's are coming exciting. up on a decade. I know. I'm excited for it to be a decade already. Yeah. I just want to be past. I want to be double digits. Yeah. Together. I hear you. That would be you. nice. Um, but we're not here to talk about me. <laughs> We're here to talk about history on the rocks with Katie and Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women and alphabetical women <laughs> from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. And we're not historians. Absolutely not. No. <laughs> we dabble. We dibble dabble. Mm-hmm. But we definitely are good drinkers. Oh, Yes, absolutely. We have mastered that craft, at least. On Mother's Day, we had eight people that <sighs> finished seven bottles of wine for dinner. And we had cocktail hours. Oh, yeah. So we had cocktails. And we had beers before the cocktails. Yeah, and so- <laughs> or I did. Me and producer I, and your dad. Yeah, I did not. Um, I came late. But yeah, that was a very fun Mother's Day. It was Day. such a fun Mother's Day. I had a great time. So enjoyable. <laughs> I had a great time, too. It was fun. All the girls the the second generation girls mm-hmm. cooked so me and katie and olivia it was just delicious and fun and <laughs> it was awesome and just proving the point that we weight train for this drinking every weekend every <laughs> sunday we do the heavy lifting <laughs> to make sure that we are coherent at the least on thursday <laughs> not like at the beginning of this show no. in our old episodes but like here's the thing we're doing an alphabetical season mm-hmm. this week we're on g and h yes i'm very excited so i have the honor of going first with g um but you know i'm doing the girl scouts and maybe you are busy setting up your girl scout cookie selling table i don't think it's the time of year for that oh it depends on the region depends on the region <laughs> that was obviously not what i researched today. <laughs> uh because i i do want to clarify i'll get it no i'll do the clarification right before i do my thing but okay, cool. if it's in your region you're setting up your girl scout cookie table outside of the marijuana dispensary yeah and you <laughs> you've got to get those girls counting the bills correctly they have to count out the change uh-huh. because you are teaching business economics to these children exactly so you don't have time no to google these women but you're also like not that invested so you can listen to this while you're doing it right um <laughs> so while you're selling cookies we are going to describe what these women look like so you don't have to look on your phone while you're selling cookies <laughs> um so we're going to describe what they look like we're going to get a little physical physical, physical. 
Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? So I am doing Henrietta Lacks, H for Henrietta Lacks. (laughs) And she was a beautiful young woman who had a mixed ancestry back when her great-grandfather was a slave owner. Mm. So her great-grandfather was a white man. Um, She was light-skinned with hazel eyes. She was also known for being petite. She had a very small waist and a size 6 shoe. Hmm. Her friends and family members described her after her death as being very put together. Hmm. Like her pleats were ironed. Her nails were painted red. They were not chipped. Mm-hmm. Like she's one. You know how when you just see a person and they look put together. Yeah. Like you were not rushing this morning. Yep. You sat and had your cup of coffee. Yep. You steam cleaned your clothes. Like yep. good for you. Absolutely. That's how she looked. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you doing and what does she, they, them look like? Um, so I am doing the Girl Scouts of America. Woo, 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 woo. Girl Scouts are young women, typically uh, aged from kindergarten to 12th grade. In the official uniform, they are wearing khaki pants or skirts, a plain white shirt and a vest or a sash that is adorned with badges. And sometimes they have little bandanas and they're just like cute young girls from every corner of America and frankly, the world. Right. So yeah, that's what they look like. They're just girls and little, they're like, but I also think it's funny that like the typical Girl Scout in like a pop culture thing is always in like a Catholic schoolgirl uniform mm. almost. You know what I'm saying? It's always like a pleated like green skirt with like saddle shoes and a beret and the sash. But like yeah. I've never actually seen a, like a no. real Girl Scout. There's like that formal way. uniforms that you mm-hmm. wear, and then there's like the cash. Yeah, the cash. <laughs> <Everybody's> so <wearing laughs> the cash. Um, all right. So are you excited to get into this cocktail? Um, it looks (laughs) so freaking good. And I'm assuming it's Girl Scout cookie themed. Of course. And I love it. I'm so excited. I think that most people would think that I would go Thin Mint. Of course I would think that. But I went my favorite cookie, which is a tag along. Which, yeah. Perfect. I think it's the best one. Okay. So In some corners of the world, it's called a peanut butter patty. (laughs) But yes, a tag along. So this is called Tagalong Daisy. <laughs> it is an ounce of bourbon, an ounce and a half of peanut butter whiskey, and an ounce of chocolate liqueur. And then I thought, okay, so we have the chocolate, we have the peanut butter, but where's the cookie element? So you pour all of that over a scoop of cookie dough ice cream. This is this is truly Cheers. the <laughs> honor of my week has been thinking about you making this cocktail. Mm. Delicious. It's so good. Tastes kind of like a mudslide. Mm-hmm. But with peanut butter. Yeah. <laughs> the peanut butter changes things a lot. And TBH, <laughs> the tag along, definitely one of my, my favorite cookie when I was a kid. But you couldn't have it, right? Because of Eric? Yeah. We didn't eat as many peanut butter things. Like, we could have them, but we didn't get them as much just not to have them in the house. Okay. But. I wasn't sure if it was like a forbidden treat for you. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. We could definitely eat peanut butter. We just didn't have as much of it around. Um, loved it because my dad loves peanut butter as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am now a Samoa girl. Really? Which is a caramel delight. I didn't understand or appreciate coconut as a child. No, me neither. I thought that yeah. those were the grossest Girl Scout cookies yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, it's funny because now my other favorite one is the lemon icing ones. Mm-hmm. What are those called? 
Lemonades. Lemonades. Mm -hmm. Those are fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and they're different on both parts, which that's this is a good thing to bring up. A lot of people are like, oh, they changed the names mm -hmm. because of that, that, that. They didn't. There's two different bakeries that, and you can't copyright the names. So, yeah. like, the East Coast Bakery is different from the West Coast Bakery. And yeah. they all used to be the same. And this is the thing. This gets to my caveat. The Girl Scouts of America are such a widespread so <laughs> organization. Big. Yeah, so, so I'm going to talk about the history of them. I'm going to get into some of the current stuff about them. But if I miss your favorite Girl Scout fact oh, or Christ. if I, <laughs> so you much. know, whatever, like every troop, every troop is so different, let alone the different states and their rules and their yeah. regulations yeah, yeah, and yeah, everything yeah. like that. So this was hard to narrow down. So mm -hmm. I just want to give that warning that, you know, this will not be, uh, reminiscent of every single Girl Scout experience. How could it be, right? Yeah, um, no way. But one thing that is very consistent is we're going to talk about the founder of the Girl Scouts, Juliette Lowe. So... <laughs> Do you so, want me to tell you about Yes. Now? What do you know about Because I wasn't a Girl Scout, but okay. you were. So I was a Girl Scout, and I'm know? also officially a trained Girl Scout leader. <gasps> so, like, I have all the background. All the background. Yeah. Wow, you should, probably should have done this research. No, no, no. no, no, no. no, no. Actually, I like this better. No, I didn't Because then it. you can... <laughs> fill in the gaps. Yeah, you can fill in the gaps for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I only ever actually ran a daisy troop okay. for a couple years, but I had to do the official Girl Scout leader training in mm -hmm. order to do that. Like, you have to get certified. So, Juliet Gordon-Lowe was born on Halloween. I only know that because we have a big party for her birthday every year at Girl Scouts. <laughs> um, I, I only know a little bit of facts about her, but she was very pretty. She was mm -hmm. very, very pretty, especially, like, the portraits oh, of her in dresses. she was a southern... Bell yeah, she, debutante. She really was gorgeous. Um, I know that the Girl Scouts go Daisy, Brownie, Juniors, and then Cadet. And I we usually see the girls in that green color, and that's the juniors. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the middle school age, like sixth to eighth grade, when you're right. usually looking at Girl Scouts. Um, I know that they really, a lot of people look down on Girl Scouts. Like, they don't do camping like the Boy Scouts do. They don't do this like the girl Boy Scouts do. But they are, like, a really big girl power organization. Oh, yeah. And they're a big, like, world acceptance organization. They talk about, they have, like, a day every year called Thinking Day where mm -hmm. they, like, learn about a different country and, like, really try to understand the world around them. Um, I know that they usually meet once a week. People bring, they learn about economics. They learn about friendship. They learn about um, helping people and the helping the wild. Uh and they sell cookies. Yes, they do. <laughs> if I can sell cookies. And they're the greatest. And both my daughters were Girl Scouts and I was a Girl Scout. And I love all it. my brothers are Boy Scouts. So, Well, you're going to want to be a Girl Scout too after this story. Uh, no. <laughs> I was in a I'm parade not... as a Girl Scout one time. Really? Yeah. I did. Like, I started crying during my research. I was like, why wasn't I a Girl Scout? Oh, like, my God. That would be way too much organization Every time my in my research that somebody went to, like, Smith College or Sarah Lawrence, I'm like, why wasn't I a feminist sooner? <laughs> <laughs> All these years wasted. I'm like, why can't I go to a historically female college? Oh, trust me. I, the reason I got into feminism and women's, I became a women's studies major after I wrote an essay in my anthropology class that was like, why feminists are dumb. <laughs> That's my background in feminism. Yeah. And my professor took me aside and was like, 
I'm going to send you to a screening of the film Misrepresentation. And then I became a women's studies major like that week. <laughs> Perfect. So <laughs> maybe let's... somebody should have done that for us in middle school. Probably. <laughs> so let's get into it. Mm-hmm. My sources are uh, two different podcasts. Uh, one is called Then Again and then History Honeys, uh, which is so cute. It's two, like a married couple that do a history podcast together. It's very sweet. Uh, the Girl Scout website and Wikipedia. I couldn't believe there were like no videos on the history of the Girl Scouts. On YouTube? No. None? And, like, if they were, they were, like, five minutes long. Like, not substantial. Maybe we should make one. Maybe we should. (laughs) Our story begins in the spring of 1911. A woman named Juliette Lowe was living in the UK, recovering from some personal setbacks and trying to figure out where her life was going. She was newly single, 51 years old, and filling her time with arts and ceramics classes and things kind of like that when she happened upon a very interesting man at a dinner party in London. His name was Robert Baden-Powell, and he was talking about his latest project, something called the Girl Guides. So Robert Baden-Powell started the scouting movement in 1907, kind of on accident. So he wrote a book called Scouting for Boys, and people just started reading it and creating troops of Boy Scouts. And it kind of just grew very, like, grassroots organically from what I understood. I did not know that. Yeah. That's people crazy. just read his book and then people started scouting. <laughs> and by 1909, they had kind of really formed it into, like, a program with jamborees, as they do. And, and popcorn sales. <laughs> <laughs> and it had spread so rapidly across the UK that, like, girls started showing up to the meetings because they're like, we want to scout too. And I thought this is interesting. Apparently it wasn't really a problem in the beginning. They're like, okay, here you are in the meetings. That's fine. But then the girls themselves started to come to Robert Baden Powell and they're like, we'd kind of like our own group, you know, like this is, you know, we'd kind of like to do our own thing, which I thought was interesting. That was not how I thought it would have yeah, it would gone be like, down. You can't come here. Right. I thought that it was built out of exclusion. Yeah. And it just doesn't seem to be the case. No. And the girls are back in now. Yeah, they are. So as of 2019. There's Girl Scouts and they're Scouts. Yes. <laughs> There's no more Boy Scouts. But that's because their freaking numbers were dwindling. So Absolutely. they need to poach off of us, mm-hmm. the other 50% <laughs> of the population. So Robert Baden-Powell called up his sister and he goes, can you help me start a troop for girls? I'm going to call it the Girl Guides. And by 1910, just three years after the Boy Scouts were formed, the Girl Guides in the UK was formed. And when Juliet Lowe heard about this, she was like, this is amazing. I need to be involved. She's like, this is everything I wanted to do as a girl, but I was put in boarding school. (laughs) So... The girl guides at this time were geared towards learning how to become self-sufficient. They learned things like how to take care of livestock, how to tie knots, how to read a map, cooking, first aid, camping. It was pretty much the same shit as the boys were learning, but maybe with like a slight domestic lean. So she started working with the girl guides. And after a year in 1912, she said, I need to bring this to the U.S. Like girls in America need to be doing this. They would love it. They would love it. So she went home to Savannah, Georgia, <laughs> called her cousin Nina Pape, who was a teacher, and she said in her one of her most famous quotes, 
I've got something for the girls of Savannah and all America and all the world. And we're going to start it tonight. Oh. I got chills. I don't know. If you got- <laughs> God. And on March 12th, 1912, the American Girl Guides patrols had their first meeting in Savannah, Georgia, and 18 girls signed up. They were the first Girl Scouts. Oh, amazing. <laughs> so before we get into this group and how they ended up having millions of members and the <laughs> ins and outs of the brownies and the cookies, let's get into the life of the founder, Juliet Gordon Lowe. Juliette McGill Kinsey Gordon was born on October 31st, Halloween, 1860, in Savannah, Georgia. My favorite day of the year, <laughs> besides the Christmas. Best. Is she, is she, could she be better? I don't know. Yeah. If you're born on Halloween and have like a Girl Scout soul, <sighs> get out of here. The best. Get out of here. <laughs> she was named, get this, after her grandmother. So to set her apart, everyone called her Daisy. And that's why we have the daisies. Very cute. <laughs> Very cute. So I am going to call her Daisy from now on because that mm. was like the name that she went by. Apparently that was her nickname. Okay. Um, and as she got older, that turned into crazy Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's what we call my best friend's daughter. Really? Who's a nut. Oh, that's so Crazy cute. Daisy. Because her name's Daisy. Oh, I love it. She was the second of six children born to William Washington Gordon II and Eleanor Nellie. Her, no- her mom was a Nelly. Come on. A Nelly, be- Nelly begat a Daisy. How- it doesn't get better than that. This story could not get better. I Stop know. right now. We're done. Stop it. <laughs> Nothing else to learn. And if you weren't in love with her family already, um, her grandmother, Juliet, was closely related, like in the family of the earliest settlers of Chicago. And she wrote a whole book about her family's experience. Now, this can go one of two ways. And hers goes the better way. I was going to say. What Are they her- like Southern racist? I'm really no. worried. Okay, good. So <laughs> half of her family is. So what <laughs> made Juliet's take unique was that she talked a lot about the lives of the Native Americans who had been there. So she explored the culture that had already been and that had been displaced. And she also quotes this other author that was like really radical at the time who was like, oh, yeah, the U.S. is to blame for all of this bloodshed. <laughs> and that's all very bold because this is not the usual tone. It's usually like, you know, the cowboys are the heroes and whatever. And like the Indians are the bad people. Right. You know? Let's and play she, cowboys and Indians. Yeah. Pew, pew, pew. yeah. And her grandmother and Julia's born in 1860 was like, mm, <laughs> that's not quite how it went down. <laughs> So we She's loved- like, I saw it. I saw I was there. <laughs> so, like we're giving her a Southern accent. She's from, she's the earliest people in Chicago. <laughs> we don't um, know how they talked early in Chicago. <laughs> maybe it was like that. Maybe. The Bears. So Is as far as, yeah, sure. <laughs> so as far as I know, we really like Juliet Sr. and Juliet Jr. <laughs> Good. Daisy's family was one of wealth and means. Uh, Her father made a lot of money in the cotton industry. Uh, And then since she was born in 1860, she was just a baby when the Civil War broke out. And Georgia is not the best place to be during this time. Mm -mm. So when she's just six months old, her father went off to war to fight for the Confederacy, Mm. which actually caused a pretty big fracture in her family because his wife was like, 
no, I'm Northern. Like, I don't want you fighting for the Confederacy. And so she kind of grew up with these kind of dueling narratives. I'm like, that's kind of confusing for a young kid of like, do I support dad or mom? I don't know. <laughs> She's pro-life. He's pro-choice. Exactly. It's all crazy. Crazy daisies. Um, <laughs> so they were torn. And as the war went on, it eventually encroached on them physically. So they had to get out of Georgia. And they ran off to Chicago for a bit where Daisy contracted brain fever. Now, this could be a number of things. I don't know exactly don't... what type of brain fever she had. Did she have, like, anxiety? <laughs> I don't know, but thankfully she recovered. I mean, she almost died. But some people think that this may have, like, changed something with Daisy because after this she was very accident-prone and had a lot of weird medical stuff happen to her. Wait. Okay. <laughs> I'm so confused. What is brain fever? I don't know. Some people say it was, like... um like meningitis oh yeah that, yeah that could be possible that's that a personality changer what's the other one that like um that's on your skin oh leprosy mm, but less <laughs> less leprosy ish um eczema no <laughs> i have to think about it there's one that like it i mean the lyme's disease changes the way yeah. you are forever mm-hmm. um mersa <sighs> Oh, maybe MRSA it was. is maybe like it was. something on your skin that like goes crazy. I don't know. I don't know. They just said brain fever. So, but thankfully it didn't change her like personality. It just like, some people are like, is your equilibrium off, honey? Because <laughs> you're falling left and right. Um, like once she like broke her fingers so badly that the doctors were like, I think we just have to cut them off. <laughs> no. Thankfully they didn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she also contracted malaria all the time like more than once more than twice i think well i'm a true believer that mosquitoes smell people differently i think so i i believe in that as because well. if i sit next to my little sister i will never get bit and she gets bit all the time oh that's so she weird. smells good to them i think so so because she had malaria so often because she had brain fever and all this stuff she did suffer like severe hearing loss in one of her ears mm. so she is now like kind of um, almost deaf in one ear. Mm. Uh, but even throughout all of this, Daisy was very athletic, loved playing outside, loved playing sports and games. Uh, and then if she was maybe injured or had malaria, uh, she was also very into art and poetry and writing. She just loved doing everything. She actually reminds me so much of Caroline. Oh, Like when Allie's daughter, Caroline fell into a fire pit a couple <laughs> years ago um she has the question she's like why me and i kind of be like it's because you're doing your things playing. all the time you're playing all the time it's why you get hurt so often <laughs> because caroline gets hurt all the time yeah because you're not sitting on your phone and doing nothing right you're like actually having fun <laughs> but also like caroline has this like very inner artistic spirit you yeah. know and she like wants to be a filmmaker and a writer you know all these yeah. things so i i just see a lot of Juliet Lowe mm. in Caroline. <laughs> um, she also had a little newspaper that she ran as a child called the Malbone Bouquet. Mm. And she also started a helping hands club where she learned to sew and she made clothes for the children of Italian immigrants. <laughs> 
Stop. She's all over the place. As far as education goes, her parents sent her up north to a few different boarding schools. Miss Emmett School in New Jersey, the Virginia Female Institute, the Edgehill School, and Mademoiselle Chabonnet, a French finishing school in New York. I think her parents were really trying to like hone in those ladylike skills that she seemed to be lacking. If somebody <laughs> sent me to a finishing school, I would straight up <laughs> die. Yeah. I would be having the time of my life, but I would I'm sure. die. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1880, when she had finished up her lady schooling pursuits, she moved to New York and studied painting for a bit. But then her sister passed away suddenly and she had to move back home to savannah georgia to help her family out during this time period she met a man named william mckay Lowe. he was the son of a family friend and they began courting in secret oh why secret i don't know because <laughs> <laughs> why tell your parents anything why when you can be secret <laughs> so unfortunately he left to go to school at oxford in england so they kind of went their separate ways for a unfortunately, bit unfortunately he was a Unfortunately. genius <laughs> um in between she was like okay you're going to england i'm gonna travel europe <laughs> So she just goes around Europe and she just loves learning things. So she develops several new skills, including shorthand, bareback horse riding, and hunting partridge. This girl is pri- <laughs> privileged as fuck. Where oh, is she getting this so money? privileged. My God. <laughs> her parents are just like showering money on her. Exactly. Um, so now that she's come back as like this very well hobbied lady i don't know what to call her um she <laughs> well hobbied and finished <laughs> she and william reunite and they get engaged in 1885 they married the following year on december 21st 1886 the same day as her parents but unfortunately the classic accident prone daisy had something truly awful happen at her wedding when they were leaving the church and people were throwing the ceremonial rice at the couple, a piece of rice flew into her good ear and it got lodged in there and she had to get it surgically removed. Stop. The surgery did not go well. And then they're like, I know what we'll do. We'll put some liquid nickel in her ear. Or something like that. <laughs> it was like something like really crazy. Well, like, did, twe- did tweezers not exist? I don't know how far this thing went in. It was in the <laughs> cochlea, honey. It was in the cochlea. Listen, there are three skinny <laughs> little bones in there, and it was lodged in one, in was, one it, of it them. It was in the hammer. <laughs> so she was left so with dumb. permanent damage in her good ear. So now... So wait, she can't hear at all. She's like a hearless woman. Pretty much. She wouldn't be classified as deaf, but she's absolutely extremely hard of hearing oh my God. and she would typically like read lips to communicate because like i think it all kind of like sounded like white noise to her that's terrible uh it was terrible but it also led to some funny moments for her like one time she was at an event and she was like sitting there and everyone else like get, stood up to start clapping so she's like okay i'll stand up and clap you know and she's, she's clapping with everybody but what she didn't know was that they had all been asked to stand up and clap for her. So she was giving a standing ovation to herself and she didn't know it. Perfect. <laughs> well, it's awkward if you don't clap when everyone else it is. Because then you look like an asshole. But now she like kind of looks like, they're like, wow, you really think highly of yourself, <laughs> Daisy? What an ego. <laughs> 
But this hearing impairment was not so fun for her husband. It made communication between the two of them very difficult. And it also didn't help that they had very different schedules. They were constantly split between London, Scotland, and Savannah. So, like, they really couldn't communicate together. And then they were always on different schedules with, like, which house they were at. Again, rich people problems. Um <laughs> Like, I'm just trying to, like, pay my mortgage. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, so that kind of caused some tension. And then she discovered that she couldn't have children, which was a big disappointment for both of them. So because her marriage is not going so great, she throws herself into other activities. Um, she gets into charity work, which apparently her husband didn't like. I don't know if she married, like, Scrooge McDuck or what. Like, he's like, I don't like this charity work you're doing. That's This is what rich women do. I know. Charity what did work. you expect? We can't, I can't have a job. Okay. I'm not allowed to, like, yeah. do any shit. Just let me do charity. So she's like, okay, well, I'm also going to have a bunch of hobbies then. She <laughs> learned how to do woodwork and metal work. <laughs> she carpentry check welding check 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 she designed and built the metal gates for their home in england like the curved decorative metal gates. she built them she welded them together she's so crazy if you want something right do it yourself <laughs> come on she also had a booming social life hanging out with the likes of edward the seventh and rudyard kipling uh and that's king Oh, yeah. Edward. King Edward VII. The seventh. Damn. And Rudyard Kipling, uh, author of The Jungle Book. Unfortunately, her husband was also having a booming social life with other women. No, but she was so <sighs> fun and pretty and I great. know. And she kind of ignored it for a while. Um, you know, she was like, all right, whatever. Until he had an affair with one of her close family friends in 1901. And she was like, fuck you. You went too far this time. So in 1901, she left him and they separated. They stayed simply separated for years, but eventually he did ask for an official divorce. But in the midst of splitting everything up, he ended up having a stroke and then a seizure and then dying. Good on him. But don't worry. He had just enough time to change his will so that everything was left to his mistress and nothing to Daisy. Bullshit. And once... His sisters found out about this. They raised some fucking hell. Somebody's got to. They were like, absolutely not. Daisy was such a good wife. She's amazing. We love her. So they contested the will on Daisy's behalf. They didn't even ask her. They're like, we know you're not asking for this, but we're going to fucking take care of it. That's big (laughs) sister-in-law energy. I feel like that's the type of sister-in-law energy we have. Absolutely. Like, would we murder producer? Maybe. Of course. You just Would I hide the body in the vacant house <laughs> behind <laughs> you? The vacant house in my Absolutely. backyard? Of course. <laughs> Guys, if, if he dies, I swear to God we didn't do I it. Swear. I I'm swear. I'm putting this on the record immediately. But he does um, have like a really big life insurance policy. So ooh. like. <laughs> we could be set for life. Um, <laughs> well, so her sister-in-laws went to bat for her and they won the legal battle so that girl got what she deserved lots of money (laughs) (laughs) and with her free time she's hanging out and she goes to a dinner party which changed her life so now we meet her 
back at the beginning where we started. She's a single middle-aged woman set on changing the world for young girls. As we said, the first Girl Guides of America met in March of 1912, which is 18 girls. But things started to spread fairly quickly. Because Daisy was not shy about calling up everyone she knew in Georgia, which was a lot of people because she was a Southern Belle debutante kind of girl. And she was recruiting other women as leaders and their daughters as members and their husbands as donors. (laughs) She was like, the whole fucking family's getting involved, okay? (laughs) And one person she called upon was Louise Carnegie. Yes, of those of Carnegie, Carnegie Halls. Yes, and all those goddamn libraries. <laughs> One of which is on Hamilton Avenue, where I grew up. So I can't get torn down. She was, uh, Louise Carnegie was donating money. She was on the original board of the Girl Scouts of America, which is very, very cool. Of course, we have a Louise and a Juliet. Of course. Of course. But to be clear, she was getting a lot of donations, but. In most of the early days, Daisy was funding 90% of it herself. Like, she was putting so much of her money into this. The girls started going on hiking trips and little matching blue uniforms. They went camping. And they refurbished an old carriage house on Daisy's Savannah property and made it into a meeting house. And this house had a lot of outdoor space where they could learn outdoorsy things and they could play sports. And it was really important for Daisy to create a space where they could do the kind of activities that they weren't really allowed to do other places. And one of those was basketball. (laughs) So the girls were playing basketball all the time. And apparently the neighborhood thought it was just awful. They go, girls should not be doing that. It's dangerous. It's unsightly. I don't like it. You must make them stop. And... Daisy was like, well, I think it's awful that you guys are just staring at these girls playing basketball. So Daisy put up a curtain around the basketball court outside (laughs) so no one could see them. (laughs) Like, we can play however the hell we want. Fine, whatever, which I love because it's like, when I first heard that, I thought it was going to be like, okay, like, we have to stop playing basketball. She's like, no, they're not going to change what they're doing. I'll change the environment because, like, you're the problem. It's not these girls playing basketball. (laughs) And meanwhile, they're probably like out there in like Antioch uniform. I know, like I know, skirts to their ankles, yeah. trying to play basketball. <laughs> exactly. The original Girl Scout law was written by Daisy, and it said, "A Girl Scout's honor is to be trusted. A Girl Scout is loyal. A Girl Scout's duty is to be useful and to help others. A Girl Scout is a friend to all and a sister to every other Girl Scout, no matter to what social class she may belong. A Girl Scout is courteous." A Girl Scout keeps herself pure. (laughs) A Girl Scout is a friend to animals. A Girl Scout obeys orders. A Girl Scout is cheerful. And a Girl Scout is thrifty. Doesn't say that anymore. (laughs) Well, it doesn't say all of that. It says some of that. Yes, some of that. I'm sure they took a few of those things out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a list now, but there's there's no obeys. No obeys. No pure. Um, Do they still have thrifty? (laughs) Thrifty is still part of Girl really? Scouts. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now, <laughs> the motto is be prepared, and the slogan is do a good turn daily. Now, at this time, there were some other female scouting groups that had popped up in America. The most famous one, though, that we're going to mention is the Campfire Girls, which are still around today. 
This was a group started in 1910, and they were started as the sister organization to the Boy Scouts of America. Mm. Um, And they had kind of started and kind of started taking girls camping, but they weren't officially recognized as a group until 1912, just when Daisy is starting her group. Right. By then, the Campfire Girls was actually pretty big. They had about 60,000 members who attended their summer camps every year. And when Daisy finally found out about them, she goes, oh, my gosh, we should merge the groups. Like, this would be amazing. We'd take over America. But that was not successful. Mm. I think the Campfire Girls were kind of like, who are you? Like, you stole our idea. Like, you have, like, no members. Like, we are, like... 60,000 members deep, like, no, we don't want any part of this. Right. And I think Daisy was a little sad about that. She was like, oh, I thought, like, we could I thought it was a girl power thing. <laughs> right, but no, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> and so they can they stayed separate, and both groups continued to grow. And I love that the Campfire Girls is still around today. I think it's very cool. So in 1913, the Girl Guides of America officially became the Girl Scouts of America. At the request of the girls. The girls were like, we want to be scouts like the boys. Like, you know, we want to be kind of on equal terms. Like, we're doing all the scouting activities. It just seems We're scouts. It seems like the girls have a lot of say in this. They did. From what I understand, like, you know, (laughs) I don't know. It just, it seemed like at every turn, the girls themselves were asking for things which gave me such vibes of um, the Pawnee goddesses. Yeah. Because I feel like that was a big part in that episode of Parks and Rec where, like, the Pawnee goddesses were, like, standing up for themselves and being like, no, this is how it should be. Yeah. And, like, like even though, like, <laughs> it's in the motto to obey, like, right. they're standing up for themselves. But it's also, like, the other pieces of the motto that still exist. Like, I'm trained to, like, ask those questions. Like, are you being a good friend to all right now? Right. Like, are you being thrifty right now? Like, are you making the choices that you're supposed to be making? Which are like, I mean, it's so, it's obviously written by somebody who went to finishing school. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I can tell where it comes from, but it's like, we don't, we don't go to finishing school anymore. Absolutely not. We need a list of 10 things. Give me, give me the cliff notes. Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And put it in Girl Scouts. So Daisy loved the idea of calling them scouts, equality for all. Of course. Um, so, <laughs> so they changed the name. She goes, absolutely. We're the Girl Scouts now. I love it. And this guy, I didn't see his name in writing, so I didn't put it down. Uh, but I heard about him. Who cares um, about him? He, who cares about him? Because he was a patron of the Boy Scouts. And he was very against it. Why? Because he was like, <sighs> um, girls can't be scouts. That's a boy thing. And he like started threatening to like sue them and like take them to court because he was like the boy scouts are a thing girl scouts aren't don't exist you know whatever and he goes if if girl scouts are girl scouts and the boys won't want to be scouts anymore because it's a girl thing now you know and we can't have that happen so daisy obviously did not give a shit about what he had to say (laughs) at all so Daisy ignored him, and she soon opened up the official Girl Scout headquarters in D.C. in 1913. <laughs> and then they also soon had a logo, which she made, and it was the it's the classic golden, I think it's called a trefoil. Yeah. Um, it's basically like a clover-shaped badge for the group, so she designed that. By 1915, the Girl Scouts had 2,400 members and 73 patrons. 
And then in 1916, they kept growing, so the headquarters moved to New York City, where it is still located today. During World War I and World War II, the Girl Scouts stepped up and helped communities build victory gardens so they could grow their own food during food shortages. They also started volunteering with the Red Cross at this time. They would make clothing and surgical dressings and candles for the war effort, just like anything to help out. And apparently, Woodrow, President Woodrow Wilson gave them official commendations for their help because they were doing so much. Oh. They also had some other support from the White House. President Wilson's second wife, Edith, and President Hoover's wife, Lou, both served as, I think, the president and the vice president of the Girl Scouts <laughs> Association, which is crazy. And after World War I ended interest in the Girl Scout program began to increase around the world. So in response, Olave Baden-Powell, the chief guide, I think that was Robert Baden-Powell's wife. So mm. it was his sister that started it. And then his wife took over. She created in, in England. So this is back in England. She created the international council of girl guides and girl scouts as a way to bring together the different communities of guides and scouts across the world. Their first meeting took place at the Girl Guide headquarters in London, and Daisy attended as the representative for the United States. But while she is trying to spread the program and do all this stuff, and she kind of, she does take a step back from her, you know, running the program duties to kind of do this, we do have to talk about the problems that are happening with the Girl Scouts back in the U.S. Well, I do. There is like a separate black Girl Scouts, yes. right? I know there's a female, a black female woman who founded the black Girl Scouts. Yes. Um, so the first African-American girls troop was founded in 1917. So at this point, they are separated by race. Um, the first American Indian troop was formed in New York State in 1921, and the first troop for Mexican-American girls was formed in Houston, Texas in 1922. Now, the rules kind of depended, again, like they are today, on like where the troop was located. But by the 1950s, there were significant efforts being made by the official Girl Scout organization to desegregate and integrate the groups. And, of course, the summer camps, because... One of the things is, like, people kind of, I think, had a big problem with, like, they're like, these girls are going to go away together. Like, that's not okay. Right, because all the <clears throat> troops go to the same summer camp. So regardless of what troop you're in, right. you show up to this one spot. Exactly. So that was a really big stretch for a lot of families to make in their heads, especially mm. in the 50s. They're like, that can't happen. But they kind of kept pushing and in 1956, they were finally successful in desegregating a camp in Kentucky. And Martin Luther King Jr. praised the organization for being a force of desegregation and, like, being one of the first kind of organizations really trying to make a change, mm. you know, at a at an organizational level. You know, he's not he, – like, because it wasn't just, like, individual troop leaders. Like, from what I understand – the Girl Scouts of America was trying to figure out how to do this. Like up top, we're trying to figure out how to bring people together. Yeah. And actually it was kind of more of a problem of like the individual troop leaders being like, we don't want to do that, mm -hmm. you know? So it's kind of a flip flop of what normally happens. Um, 
And then in 1969, a National Girl Scout initiative called Action 70 was created that aimed to eliminate prejudice. And by 1975, Gloria D. Scott was the first African-American woman elected as the national president of the Girl Scouts. So that's like a little, there's obviously way more to get into with the history of, you know, race and the Girl Scouts, but that was the kind of information that was on Wikipedia about it. Cause like none of the other stuff I was listening to was kind of quite talking about it. Um, so over the years, the Girl Scouts obviously grew and changed as of right now, the levels are daisies, which are grades K to one brownies grades two to three. Juniors, four to five, cadets, six to eight, seniors, nine to 10, and ambassadors, grades 11 to 12. They all have their own colors too. The daisies are blue, brownies are brown, juniors are green, and khaki are for the older girls, so the cadets, the seniors, and the ambassador. The uniforms, as we stated earlier, started out as blue in 19, um, started out as blue, but in 1914, the official color became khaki. So that's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, your sash and your vest change colors, but that remain, but everything else remains khaki. Khaki and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course the girls have a choice of wearing a tunic, a vest, or a sash for displaying official pins and awards. I could not possibly go into all of the merit badges and whatnot <laughs> because there are so many for um, all sorts journeys, of things. How many journeys have I, you been on? I was trying to read about it and I was like, I don't understand any of this. Like, yeah. it's so It's so much. intense. But I think the bronze award is like the Eagle Scott award, right? Like, so that's it's the um, gold award. The gold award. So it's bronze, mm-hmm. silver, gold. Yeah. There's awards yeah. that you can get that's kind of like an Eagle Scout. Yeah. So the highest achievement in Girl Scouting is the gold award, which can um, only be earned by Girl Scout seniors and ambassadors. Um, earning the Girl Scout Gold Award requires hard work and a willingness to take on significant responsibility. For many, the leadership and organizational skills and sense of community and commitment that come from earning the Gold Award set the foundation for a lifetime of active citizenship. The Gold Award project takes a minimum of 80 hours to complete. So from what I understand about your brother's experience in the Eagle Scout situation, he basically had to pick like a community project to do over the course of a certain amount of hours. I think yeah. he like built a bridge yeah. or something. Yeah. Something like that. So, cause I didn't quite understand how you do that, but I think you just have to like pick a project and really dedicate and yourself you to it. And you go to the people and you're yeah. like, you go around the community where you live and it's like, what do you need done? Mm-hmm. And you find somebody, whether it's a church or a, you know, an old folks home or a, you know, daycare center that like really needs something done. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you need to like scrape all the wood from paint from the wood on the outside of this building and repaint it. Yeah. And it's just like, and I'm doing do. this for free for this community organization because mm-hmm. I'm a good person. Yeah. Well, and I like it too, because I like that aspect of it that you have to also do something that someone actually needs done. Right. It can't just be like, well, <laughs> I built a shack here. Right. Nobody asked for it, but it's here. That's my thing. Right. You know what I'm saying? It, yeah, like, you have to ask around. And it's funny because in Maryland, we have service learning, which most, not every state has that. Oh, really? 
Yeah, so service learning was brought in in 1992 by Nancy Grasmick. Huh. So that's why our middle and high schoolers have to complete a certain number of service hours in order to graduate. If you don't finish those service hours, you can't graduate legally in the state of Maryland. Hmm. I didn't know that that wasn't like a nationwide thing. Yeah, it isn't. That's the Nancy Grasmick thing, which is cool. And I'm sure other states do it as yeah. well. But I know in Maryland, it was 1992, Nancy Grasmick. Well, same year we codified Roe. Currently a professor <laughs> at Towson University oh. who I have worked with and under. That's very cool. Yeah, she is cool. Hmm. Um, speaking of political matters, the Girl Scouts as a whole try to ma- remain pretty neutral. <laughs> they try and leave it like leave room for troops to make their own decisions about, yeah. you know, like what charities to support and things like that. But they do step in when there's active discrimination going on. So in 2011, a local troop rejected a transgender girl from the program. In response, the Girl Scouts of Colorado Council publicly stated, if a child identifies as a girl and the child's family presents her as a girl, Girl Scouts of Colorado welcomes her as a Girl Scout. There was immediate nationwide backlash. One donor asked for his $100,000 donation to be returned, saying that money's not for transgender kids. Ugh. The Catholic Church asked that all of their parishes cut ties with the Girl Scouts and stop buying cookies or letting Girl Scouts sell them anywhere near their churches. But thankfully, a fundraiser was held to recoup that $100,000, and they ended up receiving $250,000 in individual donations. Speaking of cookies, the tradition of Girl Scouts selling cookies started in 1917 when the mistletoe troop in Muskogee, Oklahoma, Muskogee, 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 who cares? Muskogee, Oklahoma. All right. Oklahoma, (laughs) if you're listening, if you're listening, let us know. Send us a pronunciation Uh, guide. Also, congratulations. Your Girl Scout cookies were born. (laughs) Oh my gosh. What an honor. (laughs) Honestly and truly. Really? That's amazing. Um, So this Girl Scout troop baked and sold their own cookies at their school to raise money for their troop activities. Uh, in 1922, the Girl Scout magazine, The American Girl, which I think was eventually sued by American Girl Dolls, and they had to change their name, mm. suggested cookie sales as a fundraiser, and they provided a simple sugar cookie recipe from a regional director for the Girl Scouts of Chicago. So Tag that, along! That is the original. Uh, it's just a simple sugar cookie. Is the original cookie of the Girl Scouts. Yeah, they're my favorites. The no tagalongs aren't sugar yeah, yeah yeah they're the peanut butter ones yeah what are the uh, the tr- oh, trifles 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 nobody knows I love them it's the it's face still a girl scout secret the, the multi girl face <laughs> <laughs> on a on a literal sugar cookie yeah it's amazing <laughs> no it's shortbread it's shortbread yes oh yeah that's yeah. a shortbread so it's not the original sugar cookie okay that's I don't think a thing anymore whatever I so, love whatever the they're delicious. In 1933, Girl Scouts in Philadelphia organized the first commercial sale, selling homemade cookies at the windows of the Philadelphia Gas and Electric Company. (laughs) And by 1935, organized cookie sales rose with the troops in Philadelphia and New York City using the cookie selling model to develop the marketing and sales skills of their local troops. So 1935 is when the kind of selling of cookies is incorporated into what the girls are learning about economics, which mm-hmm. is a very big deal now. 
1936, Girl Scouts of America began licensing commercial bakers to produce the cookies in order to increase availability and reduce lead time. They started with the Keebler Weil Bakery. Weil? W-E-Y-L? I don't know. Keebler Bakery. The Southern Biscuit Company and Bury Biscuit. Both later acquired by the Interbake Foods Division of the George Weston Limited. Something like that. Um, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> that I copied and pasted from Wikipedia, obviously. 125 troops launched cookie sales in 1936. Fun fact, during food rationing in World War II, the girls had to sell calendars instead of cookies because there was not enough flour and sugar and butter to make the cookies, so they sold calendars. <laughs> um, and then once they got back to selling cookies, they started expanding the menu. So the original cookie was obviously the simple sugar cookie, and then in the 1950s, three more cookie recipes were added. The shortbreads or the Scott Teas, or the Trefoils, as yeah. they are known now. Uh, Savannah's, today called peanut butter sandwiches. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, they're, they're also called, in the West, though, Dosey Dos. And, yes, Dosey Dos and <laughs> peanut butter sandwiches are, like, the least sold cookies. Really? However, because they're from the original, like, people always tried to find things to do with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, people deep fry them <gasps> and sell them at, like, county fairs and shit. Oh, my God. That sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, also, Thin Mints oh, came around this time. And Thin Mints are delicious. I do love a Thin Mint. And easily frozen. <sighs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. That's one thing I always push to cookie booths. I'm like, do you want one more box? You can freeze them. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it appears that Samoas or Caramel Delights and Tagalongs, my personal favorite, came out in the 70s. Now, I am not going to go on about all the flavors because there are so many that have come and gone over the years. But they are constantly coming up with new and delicious ones. Like they just had a s'mores one this like past couple of years and it was delicious. It was. And then they just this year did like one that was like a um oh cinnamon toast crunch yes, almost. That one was one. very it was good. So too. good. <laughs> like was... toasties, I think they're yeah, called. Yeah, they, they're always rotating in and out. They're, they're always so keep good. it fresh. Oh. As an incentive to sell, Girl Scouts are offered recognitions and rewards such as stuffed animals, trinkets, coupons, or credits towards Girl Scouts camp activities or uniforms. And these recognitions obviously as everything vary from Girl Scout to troop and council to council and whatever. Um, and although it is a great fundraising tool, the cookie program is truly meant to be a lesson in entrepreneurial skills, such as planning and teamwork, financial literacy, organization, communication, and goal setting. The award badges for cookie sales include count it up, talk it up, meet my customers, give back cookie CEO, customer insights, think big, business plan, marketing, my portfolio, PL, which is profit and loss, customer loyalty, and research and development. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know until your girls were in Girl Scouts that you are not really allowed to be doing the things for them. No. So, like, what can you explain to me exactly what the deal is with that? Yeah. So, like, I was with the Daisies. So, I definitely had a more hands on approach because they're the like K to first graders. But you do have to, with the girls, you're teaching them how to, at that age, how to count money. Mm-hmm. They have a goal sheet of how much do you want to sell. 
if you sell that much, what can we do with that money? If you don't sell that much, what can we not do? Mm. And then it becomes like at the cookie booth. They're like counting things out there. So like with the older girls, it is literally all them. Mm -hmm. They are counting up. They are making the spreadsheets. They're deciding how much to sell. This is how much of the money we're going to give to charity. This is how much of the money we're going to keep to ourselves. They make the schedule. They do like it is very highly competitive because you get badges for every single thing you do and they're different every year Mm. so like every year they pick a new animal and it's like one year it's the norwal and you want all the norwal badges and then next year it's an elephant and you want all the elephant oh that's so cool yeah so it's not like if you get the badges once you're done oh you continue to be like i am the best cookie salesperson that's very cool yeah Well, approximately 200 million Girl Scout cookies are sold each year. And for the badges. For the badges. <laughs> and apparently 70 to 76% of the profits stay with the local Girl Scout troops. So yes. it's basically like they pay the bakery and then the troops get to decide what to do with that profit. Mm-hmm. And like you said, they can choose to invest it back into the troop or give to charity or whatever. But they can decide what to do with that money, which is very cool. The record of most Girl Scout cookies sold lies with a young girl named Lily Bumpus, who sold 32,484 boxes in 2021. That's amazing. That's insane. Uh, I mean, it's obviously during lockdown. Uh, (laughs) I think a lot of people... Wanted some girls cookies because it cheered them up. <laughs> yeah, I had my little babies because the boxes at that time, they're $5 now, but they were $4 when I was doing it. And I, I brought in a whole bunch of grapes and they had to put grapes on skewers until we made 400 grapes. And I was like, this is how many pennies somebody's paying for a box of cookies. So make it worth it. Oh, like look at all these grapes. Wow. Look at them. Yeah. That's intense. Yeah, it is intense. Yeah. Like this is a good cookie and you deserve a please, a thank you. Count the money. Look at all those grapes. Well, and that's what the whole program is designed to do is to like make young girls interested in like, like I think people trivialize it and they're like, oh, Girl Scouts just sell cookies. Yeah. And it's like, no, they do so much more. And the program is meant to be so much more than that. Like it's meant to make them little entrepreneurs, which is so fucking cool. Um, but like I just said, the Girl Scouts are so much more than cookies. It's a place for young girls to find themselves, find some independence, and also find a community and kind of find what they want to pursue in life. They do learn about outdoor things and indoor things. They learn about everything. I didn't realize that. And there are also opportunities to get into STEM. So this started in the 60s and 70s. They actually, the Girl Scouts, like, paired up with NASA to get young girls interested in the space program, which is so cool. And now I believe they have 127 STEM badges that girls can earn, which I think is so fucking cool. Uh, There is, of course, a special Girl Scout handshake. And there is a tradition called bridging where the girls move up a level. So I remember this from, like, I know you said, like, for Carolyn and Eliza, like, they, like, when they went from daisies to brownies, they, like, went into, like, an oven. You crawl in, you crawl into a cardboard oven. It's and then so all cute. the older girls stir you up. Yeah, it's really cute. <laughs> it's so cute. Um, so they do that or they walk across some type of bridge on a stage. Like, it's all very 
ceremonial because it's meant to be, you know, the girls are meant to feel special. And so they walk across some sort of bridge and they're greeted on the other side by the other scouts with the special handshake. It's so cute. Sometimes there's something with a bandana. Uh, One of the coolest bridging ceremonies happens in San Francisco. Juniors walk across the Golden Gate Bridge (laughs) to become cadets. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Oh, I love it. And every time a girl walks across one of those bridges or goes into one of those cardboard ovens, she has Daisy or Juliet Gordon Lowe to thank. Juliet Lowe developed breast cancer in 1923, but kept it a secret. Oh my God, I'm crying. Stop. I know. <laughs> it's going to get worse. <sighs> she had many surgeries that did not work, and she chose not to make any of them public. But it just, no matter what she tried, it wasn't working. She even went to England to try an experimental treatment where a doctor injected lead into her, but she just ended up with lead poisoning. Like, it was awful. And meanwhile, she didn't stop working. She was going to any meeting, anything, any Girl Scout event she could. She even snuck away from the hospital during one of her recovery sessions to make a speech at the Girl Scouts Regional Conference in Richmond. But she was eventually out of options, and she was told that she had six months to live. Juliet Daisy Gordon Lowe died in Savannah, Georgia on January 17th, 1927 at the age of 66. An honor guard of Girl Scouts escorted her casket to her funeral. I hate that. Oh my God. And 250 Girl Scouts left school early that day to attend her funeral and her burial at Laurel Grove Cemetery. Mm. Daisy was buried in her Girl Scout uniform with a note in her pocket saying, you are not only the first Girl Scout, but the best Girl Scout of them all. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm bawling. I don't know why it's so so, Because it's so emotional. Yeah. Because it's also like because it's little girls. That's what gets me about it. And she dedicated her life to little girls. Which is very different. Most people don't yeah. do that. Most people no, are they like don't. very active, fun feminists. Yeah. And she like dedicated her life to young girls. <sighs> just the no- note in her pocket gets me. It just <laughs> and it's always with her now. It's so cute. Yeah. Oh, her house was like dedicated as like a national landmark, and like there's a whole park for her in Savannah. Like, yeah. and there's Founders Day for the Girl Scouts. Like, it's all so great yeah. and. There, and I think that's where the, cause I was thinking, I was like, why am I getting so emotional about this? And I was like, I think it's because it's little girls. I just like the Girl Scouts, like walking her casket, like really got me. And yeah. like all these little girls, 250 girls skipped school to go to her funeral. Like that's so sweet. <laughs> like it is, oh. it's, it's such a cool thing. It's a legacy. It is a legacy. On. It's a huge legacy. Yeah. So um, that's the story of the Girl Scouts. Oh, my God. <laughs> Raise your hand if you're bawling on the subway. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's super, oh. it's super beautiful and so inspiring. And, yeah. like, just somebody who was like, okay, I'm going to make a difference today. Yeah. And, and I, she, I, that's my, my other favorite thing. She goes, we're going to start it tonight. Like, <laughs> she was not wasting any time. We're doing it now. <laughs> oh, Perfect. Are you ready right. to hear about another woman that will make you yes, cry? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
we're so much more positive. Yeah. We took a break. <laughs> I mean, this story won't be more positive. Yeah. <laughs> that story was positive. We're just not crying right now. Okay. This second. Okay. But we may be. We might. In a little bit. Yeah. We'll Thing, see. Things might happen. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Um. So I guess you want to know what you're drinking? Yes, I do. So this is called The Immortal Theft of Henrietta Lacks. <laughs> <laughs> and it is... An ounce and a half of vodka and then creme de cassis or Campari or Aperol. Just right. any like red aperitif okay. is fine. Um, and then a whole bunch of blackberries mm-hmm. like mixed in with ice and a highball glass and then topped with 7-Up. Ooh, I love it. I know. Cheers. 7-Up specifically. <laughs> it's like bitter 7-Up. I love yeah. it. It's like really bitter. I mm. like that. Because you used Campari and I do love Campari. Mm-hmm. I think it just like adds a really nice bitterness to yeah, a cocktail. Yeah, it's not sweet like no. a lot of other things. It's like really yeah, bitter. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, a great th- what a great way to describe it, Katie. <laughs> All right. So I guess tell me what you know about the letter H, Henrietta Lacks. Okay. So I know that. Basically, the story goes that she passed away, I think, from, like, breast cancer or something, and they took her genes, and then her genes were the basis of, like, everything in modern medicine. I don't – it's called the HeLa gene, and her descendants basically, like, didn't know about it, Um, and then they found out and were like, we are owed millions of dollars. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) what the fuck? Like, Yeah. yeah. Because it was, I don't know if it was like from her tumors or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Because when I was in school, I, they, my, one of my professors gave us like a couple options for books. She can use, you can read this book, this book, or this book. One of them was the Henrietta Lacks book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And then another one was The Glass Castle. I bought both of them, but ended up reading The Glass Castle, which was an enthralling book. But it is, I, and I, it is very enthralling. And but I, I like it less than educated. Ooh. But also, I think I like it more. That's, that's interesting. interesting. Well, I listened to both of them, and okay. the, the author read Glass Castle, oh. and I think she's not an actress, you right. know. So, like on Audible, it's like okay, right. so you're reading this, right? But it was also more raw. Yeah, I don't know. It was mm. interesting. But anyway, so that means that I have the book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, but I've never actually read it. Well, you will love it. I'm sure I would. It's yeah. on my bookshelf. It's been one of those things where like, you know, it's mm-hmm. like the book of to read, the pile of to read books becomes so overwhelming and it, yeah. So I'm excited to learn about her because I do want to read the book. Yes. And I think, so my sources are obviously the book, mm-hmm. The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And then also like the movie, because oh, there's a movie? There's a movie that came out in 2017 where Oprah is the star. Like, she made the movie happen. Hmm. But the book isn't a... Well, it's about Henrietta, but it focuses around the life of her daughter, her youngest daughter, Diana, trying to find out things about her oh. mom. So the book is very interesting. The movie, phenomenal. An Ooh. hour and a half. You can get it on Amazon Prime. It's great. Oprah's involved, so it's even greater. Um, obviously, I read Wikipedia. I read a lot of articles. There's a ton of scientific articles because there have been so 
many discoveries made based off of like Gila in general. So I I was doing a lot of reading this week just to try to get the scope of the scientific like brevity of what's happening. Right. Because it's it's so much. It's so much. (laughs) And like same as you, I know the story, but I didn't scientifically understand how important it was. And I didn't personally understand why her family was so offended. Right. Yeah. So it's like two very separate ideas. And I didn't quite understand really what physically happened to her. Exactly. So I'm excited to get a clearer picture of her story because I think everyone knows the gist. Right. We get the gist. But I want to know more than the gist sometimes. Okay. So Henrietta was born Loretta Pleasant on August first, nineteen twenty, in Roanoke, Virginia. Her family is unsure like her younger generations who have been interviewed about her a thousand times. Um, they're unsure when her name changed from Loretta to Henrietta, but either way, her nickname was Henny as a child. Aww, when she Henny. was growing up, I know. Her mom was Eliza Pleasant and her dad was John Randall Pleasant. She was one of like a million and five children. (laughs) So when she was four years old, her mother, Eliza, passed away giving birth to her 10th child. (gasps) 10 children. Yeah. She's one of 10. But the dad, John, unable to care for all those children alone, moved closer to his family in another town in Virginia where the children were distributed among relatives to care for like you're an aunt you take this one you take this one like I can't handle 10 kids I mean (laughs) who can I really I I can't handle one maybe two yeah (laughs) like I don't a hundred percent blame it at least he's putting them with family yeah like he's not doing the wrong thing he's like trying to care for his children and I think he's trying to put them in loving homes you know because like we've covered some people who are like you know I can't do this like get away from me yeah exactly Right. So Henrietta ends up with her maternal grandfather, Tommy Henry Lacks, and they lived in a two-story log cabin that was once the slave quarters on the plantation that had been owned by her white great-grandfather. So her great-grandmother was raped by the slave owner of the plantation of the house that she is now living in. Oh, my God. So that's like trauma in and among itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she shared a room with her cousin, Day Lax, who is nine years old at this time. He's her first cousin. And, and how she, old is she? She, okay, so her mom died when she was four. Okay. And then she moved in here. So she might be like five or six okay. and he's nine. Henrietta, at a very young age, started working at a tobacco farm Mm -hmm. along with the rest of her family to, like, make ends meet. She fed the animals. She tended the garden. She toiled the tobacco fields. And she ended up going to the black school in town that's two miles away from the cabin. But in the sixth grade, had to drop out just because the family wasn't making enough money. And, like, honestly, a lot of kids at this time in, like, 1920s, specifically black kids in the South, which Virginia is, they just left school and did what they had to do to make money. So when she was 14, not but a few years after dropping out of school, she gave birth to her first son, Lawrence Lacks, who we call Larry. And four years later, she had a daughter, Elsie Lacks. 
both of these kids are fathered by her cousin that she shared a room with. Oh, no. However, they're, they are in love and they do get married. But it is her first cousin. Oh. So it's very weird. Like they're living in the ex-slave owner cabin with her grandfather, none of her 10 siblings, with her older cousin. And now she marries him and has two kids with him as a teenager. It sounds like there is some grooming involved. There's some grooming. This like, is, I do want to be clear, this is a happy marriage. They do stay together for the forever of their lives. Oh, okay. But it is, it's very uncomfortable. <sighs> it's very uncomfortable. I wasn't expecting yeah. that. It like, it made me, cause like when I was looking, I was like, her last name's Pleasant, but like her mom's maiden name is Lax. Why is her name Lax? Did she go back to her mother's maiden name? And I'm like, oh, she like married a maternal cousin. Okay. Um, and it's, all, it's, it's, it's hard. It's weird. I mean, the it's president like, at the time was married to his sixth cousin. So it's <laughs> like, I mean, at some point you're just like, I get that things were different at that point, but you're right. Grooming is a great way to say it. It's like how much was involved in like, yeah. we were sharing a bedroom when I was six and you were nine. And now I have a baby when I'm 14. So right. I don't know. I don't want to dis disgrace the situation because nothing bad was ever like said about it yeah. in what I read, but it yeah. just seems uncomfortable. Yeah. So Lawrence is the oldest child. Um, and he, Definitely has a different perspective from the other children that Henrietta ends up having because mm -hmm. he remembers her. Oh, okay. And it's just a little bit harder for him, which becomes a point of contention later on. The second child, Elsie, was born with epilepsy and cerebral palsy. So she is different because she's kind of described at that time as deaf and dumb. And... As just atypical. Now mm -hmm. Henrietta has a son, a typical son, a husband, and an atypical daughter okay. that she is trying to raise. Mm -hmm. In April of 1941, her husband, Day, and Henrietta get married in Halifax County, Virginia. And later that year, their cousin Fred is like, guys, get away from the tobacco farm all of the white guys are leaving to go to World War II. And I'm up here in Baltimore with Bethlehem Steel. Baltimore? She spent all of her adult life in Baltimore. No! Yes! What? <laughs> She's a Baltimore girl! That's so crazy. Okay. So I'm up here in Baltimore with Bethlehem Steel and all the white guys left and we need more employees. So her and her husband and her two kids pick up and they move to Turner station, which is now called Dundalk <laughs> in Baltimore <laughs> County. And day gets a job at Bethlehem steel. Many of the white men, like I said, were called to world war two and Henrietta apparently did not love Baltimore. Oh no. <laughs> she likes Virginia way, way more. Cause it's her hometown. She like loved Halifax, you know, Virginia. It's like somewhere she really like clung to. Um, but Turner station, which is now Dundalk is like the biggest population of African Americans at that point in history in Maryland. Wow. Yeah. So it was like such a huge group of black people that were like, we can buy houses here. Right. We can live here. We can get jobs here. Like this is great. Right. So yeah. it's a huge, huge thing. And Oh 
man, did the people love her there. She took care of everyone. All of the men that moved in to work at Bethlehem Steel, she fed all of them. (laughs) She cooked dinners. People would come over to have parties and hang out at their house. And she was just like such a fun-loving, amazing wife Mm -hmm. and mother. Like she was just like the friendly, happy woman down the block that you're like, I love you, which is such a Baltimore thing. To be like, come on over. I made food. Here's a beer. Don't worry about paying me. I love you. You know, it's I mean, we were just talking on this past Mother's Day about my great grandmother who grew up in Pigtown in Baltimore. A couple streets from Henrietta Lacks. Yeah. (laughs) And she would sell padded oysters outside of her house. On her little marble steps. On her marble steps that she fucking made glisten and you know, people would line up around the corner just for her padded oysters. And it's like one of those things, like I actually, I also cried on mother's day this year. So I was like, there's so much history. And like, I don't want it to be lost. And like, (laughs) you know, and it's just one of those gorgeous things that like, I didn't quite appreciate about my family and my family's histories with my family's history with the city. Yes. When I was a kid. I mean, famously, Baltimore is a lot like Louisiana, I would yes. say, where people stand outside, or New Orleans, people stand outside their houses. Being on the front porch is important. You yeah. give each other things. You talk to each other. You're mm-hmm. having a block party, but like in the essence of like, I want to make sure you're fed. I want to yeah. make sure you're happy and you're home and you have a life. So yeah. this is like I mean, where Henrietta is. Hot, muggy cities with no air conditioning <laughs> you are like it's when, a swamp we live spring, in a swamp <laughs> when spring hits in baltimore yeah. it is insane but everybody comes outside yes. because it's so fun it and is, exciting it's fun and exciting and it's hot and muggy and our hair is sticking to our neck and again no one has air conditioning not a soul not baltimore a soul <laughs> not a, not even here in baltimore county <laughs> Not in the old houses. Uh, okay. So she is living in Maryland and Henrietta and Day have three more children living in Maryland. Danny or David, who they call Sonny, does remember his mom. He's okay. like the third oldest child. Okay. Deborah and Joseph don't have memories of their mom. So Deborah is played by Oprah in the film. So that's very important because and De- she's the one that's kind of going on the journey later. Yes. Okay. And like Oprah is playing her as a grandmother herself. Oh, okay. So at the point that the film and the book, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks is happening. Deborah is a grandmother just trying to figure out what the fuck happened to her mom and what, what the hell's happening with Johns Hopkins and all these cells. Yeah. She's like sense. so confused. Now, Joseph is later called Zachariah or Zachariah. He changed his name when he became Islamic. Okay. So he is also on this journey with Deborah, like trying to figure out what's going on with his mom. Okay. So Henrietta uh, felt at one point what she described as a knot in her womb. She was like, why is there this hard thing in my stomach and she just was like oh fuck i'm pregnant again every i mean i'm sure she didn't say that she was like dear lord i might be pregnant (laughs) because she's so british i might be in the family way (laughs) no because everybody back then couldn't say what they meant why can't anybody say what they mean i'm in the family way what the hell does that mean it's disgusting anyway so 
for she goes to Hopkins, which is the only place that treats black people at the time in Maryland. Really? I didn't yeah, know that. Hopkins, only place that treats black people. Huh. So she goes to Hopkins and they're like, oh, my God, you're pregnant because she was with Joseph slash Zachariah. Oh, so OK. She goes and she's like, there's this knot in my womb. Oh, you're pregnant. OK, cool, cool, cool. So she goes, has him. And then she's like still feeling like what is going on in here? Like things are really weird. So four months after giving birth to him, she has a severe hemorrhage and her primary care doctor tests her for syphilis (laughs) and she doesn't have syphilis. So he's like, just go back to Hopkins. Like they know what they're doing there. So a doctor at Hopkins does a biopsy of the mass on her cervix. (laughs) She's told, Look, it's a malignant tumor in your cervix. It's later found that she did have a very specific type of cervical cancer, but this was a common mistake at the time, and they would have treated it the same either way. Okay. So there's no, like, in that sense, there's no medical malpractice. They were doing, to the best of their knowledge, what they could do to make her better. Okay. So her son um, does believe that he was a miracle birth that grew up fighting off the cancer cells around him. Like that he he came out of his mother's womb in a fight. Um, at the same time though, Elsie, the daughter who was born living with cerebral palsy Mm -hmm. and all these things, she gets placed in the hospital for the Negro like like a really rough hospital in Baltimore, which is now called Crownsville Hospital Center. But it was just like Henrietta with cancer was just not strong enough to care for Elsie anymore. And it was just terrible for her. She was so, so broken about sending her daughter to an institution. When especially because she is not a white woman of means who can send her to at least a good institution. It's like, She's not in the position that her dad was where she's like, okay, I can send her away to like a loving home. Right. She's like, I am sending her off to God knows where, but I literally can't do anything else. And right imagine now. like, we know what happened to Rosemary Kennedy. I know. At a I wealthy know. The institution. Yeah. Like, so shit is not good. It isn't good. And very unfortunately, Elsie dies <gasps> at the age of 15. Oh my God. Historians believe that she was subjected to experimental medical procedures <gasps> where they would drill a hole into your brain to drain the fluids and then pump in oxygen <gasps> and helium to make it what? easier to do x-rays on the brain. What? That's like, Air, that's like a fuck, air bubbles are not good in the brain for the brain. Nope. Or I think a lot of places in the body. Uh, this is really terrible. The, there are very few flashback scenes of this in the movie, and it made my stomach turn. Just like a teenage girl screaming, like Ugh. at what they're doing to her. It was. It's really really hard to watch yeah well and i feel like there's like this weird thing where people are like oh like people who are because she was had cerebral palsy and mm-hmm. had some epilepsy other epilepsy, things other things going on so people are like well it's okay because like they're already in so much pain that like you know they can't cares? feel it. like they yeah. can't feel it or like whatever or, like they're almost seen as like less than and like yeah. their pain doesn't matter as much yeah and it's like why wouldn't their pain matter as much yeah. like that's so fucked up it i don't is. know 
it's just it's a really it's a really hard thing to cope with and Henrietta kind of knowing that yeah. and knowing she's sending her daughter to that is just gut-wrenching for her yeah but meanwhile she's going to the doctor and having like radium tubes inserted in her and they're doing x-rays and oh like my God. go home for two weeks and then come back they're trying to like kill the cancer but we didn't know how to kill cancer back then like I, we still, we still don't, don't know how to really kill know cancer. oh my god it's crazy um but during her treatment two samples of her tumor were taken without her permission or knowledge and these samples were given to a doctor named george otto gee the cells from this cancerous tumor eventually became known as HeLa, which he, H-E for Henrietta, and La for L-A, Lax. So they, like, can't even deny. No, everybody knows. Like, They're everybody not knows. denying. Everybody okay. knows okay. what exactly these came from. George found that he could keep these cells alive and develop the line previously if you took cells from human bodies and tried to do studies on them they would die within a few days right but these cells lived for a really long time was it i'm sorry go on there's two things happening okay (laughs) one they stay alive much longer Uh two they multiply super fast before you ask we still don't know why oh we don't know why her cells are so resistant i'm asking the question we don't know why why? Why? we have some ideas but there's no there's no reason to understand why these cells are so resilient and multiply so fast but the reason this is good is one if they can live outside of the body for a really long time then doctors can do extensive research on the same sample so things have a base right so things we didn't have before it's like oh now i have a base sample i can do this and then because they can multiply them so quickly there's so many they can research on they can mail them all around the world and they were mailing oh herself around the world well and it's like they can also in one fell swoop they can have the control and the experimental group and they're exactly the same the same (gasps) that's thrilling and we don't know why why we don't know why (laughs) somebody ask god that should be the the cocktail name why (laughs) that's crazy it's crazy it's crazy so in august Henrietta, who's 31 years old, (gasps) she goes back to Hopkins for routine treatment. But this time she's there and she's like, listen, I'm having like extreme pain. Can you like admit me and try to see what's going on? She goes in. She receives a blood transfusion. But this is the time they admit her permanently. She would never return to her husband and children. And she stayed in the hospital for several months um, until she died there. And I just, as a woman in her 30s with children and not that, you know, I mean, any woman in any age who goes to the hospital, children or not, if you can't go back to your duties and family when you went in for a routine checkup, it's just, it's the fucking worst. It's the worst. She, there's this heartbreaking scene in the movie where the dad is standing on the sidewalk outside of Hopkins with the kids and they're all waving up at the window and she's like, they're helping her over to the window to wave to her kids. And I'm just like, this is fucking heartbreaking. I hate it. When she passed that year, they did do a partial autopsy that showed that the cancer had menesticized all over her entire body. 
Henrietta was buried in an unmarked grave. Uh, no. Get, there's so much shit that's about to happen <gasps> medically right now. In an unmarked grave in her family cemetery um, that's in Virginia. Um, that's ironically called, was called Laxtown for the slave owners that had it. Oh my God. <laughs> And uh, her family was like, okay, we think she's buried a couple feet from her mom. So, like, that's about where she is. But nobody knows where she is for sure. The doctor, though, that first researched Henrietta's cells, when he realized, he could kind of realized when she was alive what was going on. So, he sent in a research assistant to, like, get some extra cells. And during her autopsy, they got a lot of cells. They were like, let's get a whole bunch. This was all unbeknownst to the family and they were able to create an immortal cell line from her samples. This is the first immortal cell line to ever exist that became known as HeLa. And um, the ability to rapidly re- reproduce HeLa cells in a laboratory setting has led to many breakthroughs in science. For example, <laughs> Jonas Slack used HeLa to make the polio vaccine. No. Um, there are people who have been injected with HeLa cells, including cancer patients, prison inmates, and healthy individuals to see if you could get cancer or cure cancer. HeLa is the first human cell to be mass produced in a factory and mailed around the world. And it was used to research cancer, AIDS, radiation, toxic substances, gene mapping, and countless other pursuits. She is the first human cell to have ever been successfully cloned. They have tested her cells with tape and glue and cosmetics to see if they are healthy for humans. There are 11,000 patents on HeLa cells, but by the 1970s, a large amount of these HeLa cells became contaminated Mm. and the lax family started getting calls no and they were like can we like just like come on over and like take some blood so they only notified the lax family when the hela cells were in danger of becoming extinct yeah and not even extinct they're just worried about them like because hela cells apparently they can travel so easily and extent like if you have HeLa cells open in a laboratory, they travel on dust particles, like, into what? the vent. They are, like, an otherworldly. And they're purple. That's why I put blackberries in the drink. Oh, they're purple. They're, like, crazy, oh. violent purple. What? Yeah. It's, like, a really weird. And I was, like, I wanted to make the drink look like these cells are, like, all around. So... They become contaminated. Scientists start reaching out to the family. Let's remember, she has four living children, a husband who's her cousin, all these other cousins, and ten siblings. They all start getting calls. Can we take your blood? Can we take your blood? Can we take your blood? They're trying to search for more. And the family is, like, a little alarmed and confused. They're like, what is happening? We're just, like, a random family from Virginia and Baltimore. We're, like, Halifax, Virginia, Baltimore, Maryland. Like, why is all of a sudden Why all, are you interested the in The entire scientific community of the world is interested in this African-American family in, like, some, you know, low to middle class neighborhoods. And they're like, what the fuck is happening? Why are you so obsessed <laughs> exactly. with me? Exactly. They're like, what is going on? Yeah, exactly. Um... Hopkins, I want to know. <laughs> but the family is like super like, okay, ma- the, the family is convinced that they're just trying to check if they have the same cancer their mom had. 
Oh, they think they have good intentions. Right. Which <sighs> is odd because they don't have good intentions. <laughs> <laughs> Ever. Um, but kind of by chance, one of the family members is at an event and somebody overheard that their last name was Lax and they were like, oh, there's a cell line that researches that everybody researches with that they last at name a party at a party <gasps> and like a random dinner party. And the person's like, are you seriously? And they're like, yeah, Hila named after like Henrietta Lax. And they were like, what the fuck? I don't understand. So this is like 1975, two decades after their mom died. They're finding out that their mother has been published in all of these scientific journals. Oh, my God. So neither Henrietta or the family ever gave permission to harvest cells. But at that time, permission was not required for research or commercial. But in hindsight, the family is like, we're thrilled that the cells have been used to help so many people. And Henrietta would have been thrilled too. But it is just a lack of respect. Mm -hmm. Like a not to ask. And they also say that Henrietta was such a giver. She would have given the cells freely. And it right. may have given her peace in the last days of her life. To know that, that her cells were changing the world. Even though she could do nothing laying in that hospital bed. Why didn't they fucking tell her? Say something. Because she was a black woman. Yeah, that's yeah. why they just didn't. It's yeah. exactly why. Yeah. And I mean, th the history of medical treatment of black women, which we've covered on this show, yeah. is just atrocious. terrible. It's and, atrocious. And it's frustrating because as we have learned with, uh, was it uh, Serena Williams? Yeah. It, it hasn't changed. It still hasn't really changed that much. Like they are routinely ignored by doctors and it's very frustrating. Right. <sighs> So this is just uh, a byproduct of this horrible situation. It is. That has affected lots of families. Millions of families in the United States. So it, ha it didn't stop from there for the family. They are contacted from the 80s to present constantly by scientists, doctors, people trying to make a buck, lawyers <sighs> trying to be like, I can help you get back at Hopkins. Fake lawyers, good oh, lawyers. It's like God. disgusting how many people are contacting them. Now question, do the offspring's cells do the same thing or was it just no. hers? <gasps> just her. Just hers. Just her. My God. She is unique. She's unique. So it's really hard on everyone because as we all know, old school families don't talk about stuff like this. Oh, pff, Yeah cervix cervical cancer that's a female thing yeah and a mom dying we don't bring that up because it's sad for everybody right and doctor's appointments are private mm -hmm. like it's still like that with my grandmother like if i'm like oh you went to the doctor this week she's like shh <laughs> like calm, <laughs> calm down <laughs> like people just don't talk about shit like that no back they then don't. it was improper i mean it's also exactly like you said like my mom got married in the fucking like what was it the 70s yeah, 79 your parents got married aunt susan was like a little bit pregnant and then they're like she can't be in the wedding mm -hmm. and my mom was like she's my closest cousin yeah what do you mean she's, she's like, like my best friend she's like a maybe pregnant yeah she's <laughs> we like, can't Ooh. even see it we can't even see it like, absolutely not she's in the family way she can't be in the wedding <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, it's crazy. So the problem is because of that, Diana, the the fourth child, youngest daughter, and um, Zachariah, the youngest son, they don't remember her. 
but when doctors start calling, they're like teenagers. Oh my so god! So they're very confused. They like don't understand why is their blood important. And it was like one day my older sister's here, and the next day she disappears. One day my mom's here, and the mm. next day she disappears. What is happening? Why do doctors keep taking my black family members? Like right. we don't know what's going on, and nobody would talk about it with them. Right. So this is where. Um, the movie, which is based off of the book, implies that when Henrietta died, the dad couldn't really take care of all the kids. So Zachariah, apparently from his new family, is being beaten. And no. Diana was raped by the family. Oh, my God. That is taking care of her. And zachariah ends up in prison in baltimore he just has this really hard life and diana gets this extreme anxiety and these mental breakdowns and every time she tries to find out more about her mom she goes into these crazy panic attacks and Mm. like can't control herself and like her whole family Mm. like walks on pins and needles not talking about henrietta around her but in 1980 the family's medical records are published without their consent. Oh, my God. The family. Their medical records. That's awful. Published in scientific magazines. That's for, like rule number one. Yeah, for uh, hip, hip, of HIPAA. HIPAA. <laughs> for everyone to read, which is, this is a big issue for the family, but California Supreme Court had just had a case that was like the discarded cells from a human are no longer their property, which it's like, okay, I understand that. But did they give permission to discard them? Like, you know, it's like this really weird line to walk because there is right. There are things like stem cell research that we do in abortion clinics. And there are things like if you've passed away and you're an organ donor, then we can do certain things. Mm -hmm. But this happened before all that was the case. Right. So it's just very complicated. Um, so this is where the movie starts. There is a white woman in Portland, Oregon named Rebecca Skloot, and she is interested in Gila because somebody in her family had the medical system take advantage of her. But she doesn't want to write about the cells. She wants to write about Henrietta, and she wants to write a book called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And Rebecca Skloot from Portland, Oregon Gets her tail over to Baltimore, Maryland. (laughs) And we're laughing because that is a culture shock. Let me tell you, I've never seen someone so disappointed as a person who won a trip to Baltimore, Maryland on The Price is Right. It is... I literally saw that. I this is you not saw their face this go, is not a fake story. Oh. I saw it happen and they go, You'll get two ski doos and a trip to Baltimore, Maryland. And they go, Huh. I'm gonna bet five hundred dollars, Bob. <laughs> five hundred. <laughs> that part was made up, but the look on their face and the fact that they gave away a trip to Baltimore. I was on the gonna say right five hundred was true. overshooting. Very true. <laughs> that was a little high, a high estimate. Um <laughs> with all that said, don't fucking come for my city, I'll kill you. Oh uh, yeah. We will we will murder you. <laughs> We're the myrtle capital of America. Okay. Anyway, not the point. Not the point. Anyway. So this movie, I will say, opens with this like wide eyed white woman 
driving through Baltimore and Ugh. the shots are perfect. They are like going down Northern Avenue, all the boarded up townhomes. Northern Avenue. <laughs> You're getting confused with Northern Parkway. No. Which I appreciate. Literally. From Overly. <laughs> It's North Avenue. Northern Avenue. <laughs> I wish you could see that. No, that the pantomime was great. Um, no, literally, they're going down all the streets. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, the ones where you're just, like, Taking yeah, the tour. Yeah, every day. And they're of all the like, places I used to live. They're filled. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're like, this is Katie's home. <laughs> hey! Hey! I'm outside with my boarded-up windows. What's going on? Um, is that Eric 500? <laughs> the liquor store? Oh, my gosh. Hello. Is that the lake where someone's dead in great it is i mean it's exactly what you would expect to see like Mm -hmm. driving through baltimore and they are making a point on purpose because this woman would not and did not give up she refused to give up on the lax family so rebecca comes in and she's trying to talk to the family she's like i want to talk to you i want to figure this out and of course there is extreme pushback they're like researchers come in all the time they're trying to make money right. off our family they're trying to write books about us and sell it for profit like how fucking dare you you know zachariah had been beaten diana who's a grandmother herself at this time is like having anxiety attacks about her mom and everybody's like just get the fuck out of here you don't understand us and you you never will but the movie does this amazing job of showing the relationship between rebecca and diana that evolves over time and they together discover the story of henrietta Lacks. (gasps) together these two women so the book comes out in the 2010s and then Oprah announces the movie, which came out in 2017, and Renee Elise Goldsbury plays Henrietta, which is amazing. <laughs> but the book and the movie actually inspired a tombstone to be placed at her grave, oh. which she never had. So somebody donated money to put a book-shaped tombstone there. And it said, in loving memory of a phenomenal woman, wife, and mother who touched the lives of many, here lies Henrietta Lacks, Gila. Her immortal cells will continue to help mankind Mm. forever. And that inspired the family to put up a tombstone for Elsie as well, the Mm. 15-year-old who had died in the asylum. In 2021, the Lacks estate filed a lawsuit against a scientific organization for profiting off the cells without permission because now they are pissed about, they're not pissed about saving the world and polio and all that shit. They're pissed that people are making money without giving it back to the family. It's a reparation situation now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So there are lots of lawsuits about that. But I will say, here's the positive. Now... Every year, there's a Gila Women's Conference to honor the valuable contributions by Henrietta and other African Americans who gave to medical research that are unnamed. She is also celebrated by former Governor Robert Ehrlich, who made her a Maryland Woman's Hall of Fame member. The NIH, who was working on publications about her, asked two family members to be on the board so that they could control and regulate the sequence of her DNA. Oh, my gosh. Johns Hopkins has an annual lecture series to honor her and built a building with her name on it. Mm. Morgan State gave her a posthumous honorary doctorate. 
There are schools named after her. There are parks named after her. There is a planet named <gasps> after her. Oh, my God. The Times ran an obituary for her, a belated obituary in the Overlooked History product, Project. The National Portrait Gallery and National Museum of African American History both put up portraits of her. She was inducted finally into the National Women's Hall of Fame. And then internationally, the University of Bristol put a statue of her up, making her the first statue of a black woman in a public space in the United Kingdom. What? In the whole United Kingdom. The World Health Organization said, I cannot think of any other single cell line or lab that has been used to this extent and has resulted in so many advances. And the truth of the whole story is that is because of her, there is not one person that is alive today that has not benefited from the research that was done on her cells. And it all started with a 30 year old woman who was a happy wife and mother and community member dying of cancer and that's the story of henrietta lax oh my god she's amazing (laughs) she didn't even know it i know that's the hardest thing about it it's like the butterfly effect syndrome you know it's like well and also if she had been in any other city in america literally and i'm i'm even saying fucking new york if she was in New York, this wouldn't have happened. Well, we're the best. We have we, the best hospital in the world. Johns Hopkins is the best hospital in the world. I didn't realize that until I had my awful kidney stone situation years ago when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I was in the hospital next to this child because I was still, I think I was like 17. I was in the children's ward and I was next to this kid and his family was from Barbados. And they're like, we come, like our child has all these medical difficulties. And they're like, he is here all the time. And we come back as often as we can because this is the best hospital in the world. And like, I didn't appreciate it until that moment. Yeah. That like, it is special and it is here. It's interesting and I love that. that we mentioned it twice this night, but Caroline's severe injury, mm-hmm. we were the closest at that point to St. Joe's. So right. the, the crazy thing is in Baltimore, Maryland, we are a stone's throw from 10 prestigious oh hospitals. 10. Well, oh, it's the best. It is the best. We can go anywhere, but I ended up going to St. Joe's because mm-hmm. it's where I birthed her. Right. So I was like, they have all her records. Uh-huh. So I get there, they look at her and they go, Go to Hopkins. And they give us a car. They give us this. They give us that. They're like, we know exactly where you need to go. But if it wasn't a burn, because they have a burn unit at Hopkins. If it wasn't a burn, if it was a foot thing, they may have sent me to Mercy. If it was this, they could have sent me somewhere else. They just, we have so many prestigious hospitals in Baltimore, we Maryland. We are so lucky. Yeah, we're like, so lucky. I always think about that because uh, someone called my mom for like a survey or something. And it was like some sort of thing trying to figure out like how, what access America, like the average American has to hospitals. And they're like, oh, like, you know, what's your closest hospital? And she goes, I mean, are you talking like geographically? <laughs> and he was like, yeah. And he, she goes, all right, well, this one is technically the closest. And he goes, okay, would you go to that one? She goes, well, if I was going for this, then I would go there. Yeah. But if I was going to birth a child, I would go to St. Joe's. And if I was going for this, for I would a go broken to bone, I'd I go here. Go- yeah. yeah. And like, she basically was like, they're all within 
10 minutes of me. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's insane how many amazing hospitals we have. And you're absolutely right. If Henrietta Lacks was not in Baltimore, Maryland at the moment of this terrible event in her life, it's terrible for her. It's great for us. It's terrible for her. She saved the world. Yeah. Everybody, yeah. every adult I know has a polio vaccine. My aunt had polio, got sick and had polio. Our lives were saved. Yeah. Because of her. Yeah. We don't have to get polio vaccines because it was eradicated because, because of, of her. her. Ugh. Fuck. Okay. Okay. We need to talk about these two women and all these girls. Yeah. <laughs> so many. A little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Or the Millions of Us. This is all so of it. exciting. It's such a great comparison because it's just one person whose legacy goes on and on and on. And unbeknownst to them. Unbeknownst to them. I, that was the part that really fucking got me. Was that these women, Henrietta Lacks and Juliet Daisy... Gordon Low, <laughs> they never got to see the impact that they had on the world. But the crazy thing is, I don't <sighs> think they would have needed to. No, they, they were such didn't amazing need to. people. Yes. And they never saw how big their life became. Like both of these women were post mortem inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Right. I didn't mention that in the Girl Scout story because I wanted to end on that note in her pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> But it's like, I just, I think so much about women who have no idea that they changed the world and there's nothing we can do about that. No, I, I don't know. It's just, and it's not even that they had an impact on the world. It's that their message and their actions were literally spread across the world. Like I think about like, the Girl Scouts, I mean, like, let's give credit. They were started in the UK, and then yeah. she brought it to America. But she was one of the biggest forces behind it, and she spread it across the world. Like, it is in so many different countries, the Girl Scouts, which is so amazing. And then we talk about HeLa cells, which were literally being put in packages and mailed across the world the and first factory produced cell that's insane and I, if we think about factories i mean you have factories churning out girl scout cookies 200 million girl scout cookies constant. are sold each year constant and hela cells are being reproduced and manufactured because they're special and i think that's the other thing it's like there's something special about these two things you know because you said henrietta lacks there's no we don't know why, but she was unique. Yeah. We have no idea why this miracle happened. I'm going to go ahead and call it a fucking miracle. I think it's a miracle that she was here in Baltimore when it happened. Right, because she needed to be. And I think it's a miracle that fucking, <laughs> you know, Daisy was in London and met the guy that created the Boy Scouts. And he was like, yeah, I just created the Girl Guides. I think go have it. And there's also a wonderful message of sharing information. I think that there is this toxic environment of withholding information and being like, this is mine and that's yours and you can't touch it. And I think it's a lot of times wrapped up in the medical community. And the fucked up thing is, is that the Lax family 
would have been more than giving, being like, yeah, of course, take those cells. I would love for you to do something amazing with these magical cells. But they weren't asked. Right. And the, the crazy thing is, it's like Hopkins was the only hospital that saw black people. Right. So they were off at a good a good start. Right. So why not, like, follow through with that shit? Just, like, just be respectful. Take that one extra step. Right. One more. One more. There's literally just one more step of a conversation that needed to happen. And it's what the family said. She would have said yes. Yeah. All we wanted. <laughs> that's all, all we, we wanted, wanted was to be asked. We just wanted to be to involved. Know. Because, and again, it's kind of funny. We we're talking about like this life-changing dinner party for yeah. Daisy. And there was a life-changing dinner party for the Lax family. We're right. like, there are these revelations that happen when we are least expecting them. And sometimes they can change your life for the better, you know, and then Daisy went off and did what she did with the Girl Scouts and it was amazing. And then sometimes it can be a total bombshell. And for the Lax family, like, I'm happy that they do know because what would have happened if it wasn't for that dinner party? Right. Would they have ever known? How amazing their mom is. Or would it have come to, you know, I would have hoped that maybe one of their offspring would have gone to medical school and maybe seen their great grandmother's name in a medical textbook. Like that would be crazy. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the great things about this story is that that exact difference that you're bringing up Mm -hmm. between privilege and not, Oh, because Juliet Daisy was so privileged and she affected the world just as much as Henrietta who had nothing was just an ordinary. I mean, the thing that kept giving me chills is she was a 30 year old, 30 something year old mom who died. Yeah. She did nothing out of the ordinary. She was fun. She had a husband. She had kids. She went to the County fair. She made dinner for people. She was a normal fucking person. And for some reason she was in the right place at the right time. And she got cancer and that fucking sucked for her, but it changed the entire world. Changed the whole world. I mean, and both of them had cancer. Yeah. Juliet, similar thing, right place, right time. You know, I'm going to step away from my husband. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to change the whole world. Not just me, but the hundreds of thousands of girls that are in Girl Scouts. Yeah. And I also think that it's really impactful with Juliet because she also, at some point in her life, chose to step down from the Girl Scouts. Mm. And she was like, yeah. I'm not serving in the role that like I once was and I'm going to release this power because I want to do other things. And then of course she got cancer and died. But again, I think there's an agency that exists with Juliet and the history of the Girl Scouts that didn't exist for Henrietta and her family. Mm. And I don't know. I just... I wish that there was just one more fucking conversation that happened with the Lax family. One more. One more. And that. Well, and like cheers <sighs> to Re- Rebecca Skloot who like yeah. she, I mean, I I hope everybody goes and watches this movie that like Oprah produced and like acted in because it is 
so good and it really does show somebody being like I will have this conversation with you and I know you're breaking down because you think I'm another white person trying to steal your money but I swear to god I'm not yeah and it's great because you also see why the mistrust is there oh my god nobody's a hero in the movie everybody's falling apart until Henrietta is the hero again even though she's dead (laughs) and her cells are amazing and purple and beautiful (laughs) and like just have saved the world yeah I mean I just think both of these women are immortal in the most insane ways that they affect our lives in countless ways and we don't really think about it yeah we don't count them we don't count them Mm. Mm. are you ready to toast i am ready i god i loved henny and daisy (laughs) so fun (laughs) Allie, who would you like to toast this evening so i was reading a like post on facebook this week it was probably our dear friend mora i can't remember (laughs) but it probably was and it was like somewhere on the world there's a bee resting on a dandelion because you blew a blow flower at some point yeah and i just i love the butterfly effect of like i'm an ordinary person but that doesn't mean i don't matter yeah and i think that that is exactly who henrietta Lacks is like the decisions i make matter when i decide to use no straws and reusable grocery bags and (laughs) you know i i commute instead of driving like there are you know there's I matter like I matter matter. and everybody matters even if you're not famous you matter yeah and there was I think that's why her story was so impactful I love that cheers cheers who do you want to toast I want to do an in-between toast for Maura and her sister Bethany I was thinking about this when you're telling her story because Bethany had meningitis when she was a baby Mm. and uh, you know, Bethany did not have the easiest life, but her family loved her so much mm. and Maura loved her so much. And I had the honor of meeting her during her lifetime and she passed away recently. Mm. Um, so a blessing to Bethany Thornton. I don't know. I just was thinking about her a lot during this episode and may your memory be a blessing. Yeah. So mm. cheers to Bethany and also a toast to organizations that don't put girls in boxes. Um, One of the things that blew me away about the Girl Scouts was that there's a badge for everybody. It seemed like I don't, I don't, I wasn't a part of the Girl Scouts, so I don't know, but so many badges, so many badges. And I kind of felt like it was truly a place where a girl could find herself and, if she wanted to get all the cookie badges, she could. And if she wanted to get all the STEM badges, she could. And if she wanted to get all the camping badges, she could. Like, I think that the Girl Scouts get a bad rap because they're like, oh, like, they're not as fun as the Boy Scouts. It's like, mm, well, the Boy Scout numbers have been dwindling. We're actually more fun. <laughs> We're actually more fun. And we do cool things. And... They have been in hot water for teaching <laughs> feminist entrepreneurial values since the 60s and 70s. <laughs> and I just love a person and an organization that doesn't put a girl in a box. So cheers. <laughs> All right. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? Okay. So I'm totally late to the party, but <laughs> producer and I are watching Downton Abbey. 
I really want to watch it. So we are late to the party. In the first couple episodes, there are a lot of people and a lot of things to get down. That's like any Jane Austen book, though. I feel like that's any British thing. It is. You're overwhelmed with characters. Now I am like fully invested. Maggie Smith, super great. There's other like old female characters. All the, I mean, okay. The female storylines are running the show. Ooh, okay. Running the show. There are also great male storylines, but not as good. And I just, (laughs) to promote something that has won awards, (laughs) I want to promote Downton Abbey because we have just recently started. You know how you have a list where you're like, I have to watch it. I know I have to watch it. I have an active list on my phone because I go through shows so slowly. Yeah. I just feel guilty that I've never seen Downton Abbey. So we're watching it. It's really good. If you want to see Maggie Smith be amazing, she's in it. She says she's never watched it because she doesn't have the time. <laughs> she's she's like, she's like, I'm sorry. I am too busy. She acted in it, but she's like, I might die before I ever watch it because I have so many things to do. Yeah, that makes sense. So she just showed up and read her lines and has a cane to walk around and is in big gowns. And I mean, she's. I mean, a duchess, so. There we go. Or a dame commander of the British forces. Whatever okay. the fuck she is. Whatever that means. She's a, she's knighted. Female knight, Female knighted. Whatever she is. Perfect. <laughs> what are you liking? So, I thought I would be on theme um, and do this little song from the musical Beetlejuice. <laughs> so, I've never seen the show. I haven't even listened to the whole soundtrack. But there is a song that I think I I saw on Instagram, and it's the Girl Scout song. And basically, it's this Girl Scout, and she's so excited because she's going to sell some cookies. And she has has, has a line. She goes, I'm going to sell some cookies. And she's at the Beetlejuice house, and she's going to sell cookies. And she's kind of telling her whole story about how her parents have not wanted her to be a Girl Scout because she has a heart defect. And she's like, if I get scared, I could die. (laughs) And there's like points in the song where she's like, (gasps) and she's like about to go into cardiac arrest. And then she's like, (laughs) jamborees. It's such a good song. The woman who sings it, I think is 35 years old, but she (laughs) looks exactly like a little cute Girl Scout. And this song is just very catchy. It's very fun. And you can see the video of it online. Just Google Beetlejuice Girl Scout song. Perfect. It gets caught in my head all the time. Great. All the time. And it's wonderful. I do think there's some like bootleg footage in that video. So I apologize to the theater folks because that is a cardinal sin. But. It's a very, very good song. So check it out. The Girl Scout song from Beetlejuice. I love that. (laughs) Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. We hope you learned something. We hope you cried. And we hope you come back next week. Katie also said (laughs) Beetlejuice three times. So now we're dealing with the situation. So now we're cursed. (laughs) We're dealing with the situation over here. Maybe we'll be back (laughs) next week. Maybe we won't for the next Alphabet series. Uh, But you can find us everywhere. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and all sorts of stuff. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can find us. Anywhere you get. Just Google, Google us. It. Just, Google, Just it. Google it. Google it. Um, and if you're looking for old archive episodes, uh, please check out our website because who knows what's going on on all the internet platforms Yeah, you now. can find 
on our website we have, i include a download link on every episode oh it's on oh there's a download link on the website yeah so i didn't even know that i put download links on every episode so if you're trying to go on like vacation or something and you want to download the first uh, 15 love it i don't even actually because i'm so so much of a mess when i'm trying to do like a dead woman episode i <laughs> I don't go into my thumb drive and try to find it. I just download our episode off the website and then edit it and <laughs> repost it. Perfect. So all of our episodes are there so you can check out the backlog because we've done a lot of really cool episodes. So don't miss out. This um, is, I think, 169. Ooh. We're doing it, guys. And if you would be so inclined, and if you're liking the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That would mean the world to us. I think we're going on since February without a review. So get rude. on it. Rude. Rude. So let us know what you're thinking about the show. And please email us any corrections if I got the Girl Scout motto totally wrong. Mm. But mostly we want you to never forget that well-behaved women. Uh, dust all of their banisters. They do. I've never dusted a banister in my life. Not once because your hands do it. Your hands do it. Calm down. But they also really make history. Goodbye. Goodbye. to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye